Hello, and welcome to episode six of the Essex Court Chambers podcast series entitled 10 in 10. Last week, I was joined by Stephen Berry, QC, and David Walsh, and we discussed together the Fiona Trust litigation. Today, our attention turns to an altogether different kind of litigation. We're going to be discussing the Gina Miller appeals to the Supreme Court in the context of Brexit. I'm so happy to be joined today by Hugh Mercer, QC, and Professor Dan Sarucci, QC, to discuss both of those appeals to the Supreme Court. Hugh Mercer is described in the legal directories as a creative and industrious lawyer who's very good at coming up with out-of-the-box solutions. He is a renowned expert in EU law and is described as masterful on his feet. He sits as a deputy high court judge. Professor Dan Sarucci is chair of public international law at Oxford University, and he appeared on behalf of Gina Miller in the first of those two Supreme Court hearings. We'll be calling them Miller 1 and Miller 2. Professor Sarucci is described in the legal directories as one of the leaders at the bar in public international law and an extremely bright advocate. Right, let's get on. Let's start, please, uh, guys, with Gina Miller 1, as we're calling it, and that was the appeal heard in 2017 relating to the giving of notice under Article 50 of the Treaty. Perhaps I can ask you, Dan, to start by giving a background to the case. Thank you, Stephen. And it's a pleasure to be with you and Hugh on this uh, Essex Court podcast. So Miller 1, as we're calling it, this case was not about actually the Brexit referendum or indeed about the Brexit decision as such. It had nothing to do with with the referendum. The question that the Supreme Court had to decide was whether it was Parliament or the government under our constitution, which one of these had the authority to give notice to the EU that the UK was going to leave the European Union. The giving of notice was provided for in Article 50 of the EU Treaty, and you may remember the constant references at the time to Article 50 of the EU Treaty. So by way of brief background, this case first went to the Divisional Court and there a decision uh, was given in favour of Gina Miller. And this caused the great controversy at the time. There was a lot of negative press coverage. You may remember the, the Daily Mail headline, Enemies of the People, rather outrageous. Uh, before the Supreme Court, there was... Uh, also a great deal of press coverage and interest. Uh, There were a large number of interventions made by various parties in the Supreme Court proceedings. And we'll come back to those issues of interventions in the Supreme Court uh, towards the end when we look at some takeaways from these two cases. In terms of the press coverage, it's the only case, Stephen, I've ever known where there was nightly news coverage of what was happening in court that day and special daily evening programs. And in fact, there was live transmission that was being transmitted by some of the networks throughout the day of the Supreme Court proceedings. It was the first time, Stephen, that all 11 justices have heard a case in the Supreme Court. The resolution of the central question, whether it was Parliament or the government that had authority to give notice to leave the UK, the resolution of this question involved considering two key features of our constitutional arrangements in the UK. The first, that government ministers generally enjoy a power freely to enter into and terminate treaties 
without recourse to Parliament. This is referred to as the prerogative power to conduct foreign relations. And Stephen, you will know that the prerogative power is an ancient power that was reserved for the monarch under our constitution to do certain things, to declare war, to make treaties, uh, withdraw from treaties. And in this case, the Secretary of State for exiting the European Union argued that this prerogative power included the right to withdraw from EU treaties. Uh, the second feature of the constitutional arrangements that were at play in the case is that ministers, government ministers, are normally not entitled to exercise any prerogative power that would otherwise change UK domestic law unless that's provided for in terms by an Act of Parliament. This second feature provided the basis for the argument in the case that the 1972 Act, European Communities Act, which established EU law as a source of UK law, that this meant that the government could not take any action to affect that source of law without statutory authorization. Now, this 1972 European Communities Act was front and centre in the case because it raised the question whether the government, by giving notice and thereby terminating the UK's membership of the EU, whether it would affect the legal rights that had been conferred under that act. Maybe this is a good opportunity for uh, Hugh to give some input in terms of the EU law background. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Yeah, the uh, European Communities Act uh, 1972 is an unusual act because it provided in Section 2.1 that all rights in accordance with the treaties are to be given legal effect within English law. And that's all rights so from time to time, however they change. So whatever regulations or directives or decisions uh, were uh, created at EU level were without further implementation to become part of UK law. So this is a remarkable sort of, as one of the advocates called it, ambulatory statute, whereby rights come in uh, and new rights all the time are coming in through the channel of Section 2.1. Yes, so, so this is in fact the argument as he was foreshadowed, that was made by the executive on the appeal in the Supreme Court. The argument was that the 1972 Act acts only as a conduit or pipe uh, through which the rights from the European Union and law from the European Union passes into the UK. It's kind of like a bridge, if you like, over which EU law and rights pass into the UK. But those rights, the government argued, were entirely contingent on the government not destroying the bridge, if you like, or destroying the conduit by uh, deciding to withdraw from the European Union treaties. And so the argument was, this is not the government affecting uh, UK law as such, but they're simply affecting the conduit or pipe through which European Union law passes into the UK. And since the Crown had the well-established prerogative power to enter into and terminate the UK's membership of treaties, the EU treaties were no different. And the fact that they had a consequence for domestic law shouldn't constrain the exercise of the prerogative. And the counter argument that was made by Mrs. Miller was that the 1972 Act had a constitutional status, which creates a new source of domestic law. So it's about creating a source of domestic law. And the argument was that it 
that the 1972 Act gave priority to this new source of law. The court decided that prerogative powers are subject to limits imposed by the law, whether these limits are imposed by statute or indeed the common law. And in the present case, in Miller 1, the Crown's prerogative to conduct foreign affairs and terminate treaties could not be used, the court said, in a way that would exceed these legal constraints. And the key paragraph of the court's judgment is at paragraph 80, where the court said that one of the most fundamental functions of the constitution of any state, and I emphasize the word any state, it's broader than just our, our constitutional context, the Supreme Court says that the fundamental function here is to identify sources of law, and that in the UK, as long as the 72 Act remained in force, then its effect is to constitute EU law as an independent and overriding source of domestic law. And so it was on that basis, uh, as I shall explain in a minute, that the court went on to find that it was for Parliament, not the government, to give notice to leave the EU. Hugh, maybe this is a good opportunity for you to discuss comparative constitutional law. Well, yeah, thank you, Dan. I mean, I just agree with you that uh, paragraph 80 is a key paragraph. Uh, I think it consolidates uh, a gradual move by the English courts towards a constitutionalization of English law, uh, whereby they consider that the combination of statutes, events, conventions, academic writings and judicial decisions together as a whole constitute our constitution. Now, a constitution formed of such disparate elements might seem strange in comparative eyes, but I think it tends to reflect the relative stability of the state in the UK. Uh, obviously, although we've gone through times of stress, uh, and it's from those times of stress which, uh, from which have emerged, say, the Magna Carta, the Bill of Rights in 1688, and also the case law, including the Miller decision uh, along over the years. And there's a clear contrast here with countries with a written constitution, but normally those written constitutions are born out of a total rupture within the society, so you look at, for example, France with their first constitution in 1791 or the Grundgesetz in Germany in 1949. So it's a different approach, but then... Or, the, or Hugh, Hugh yeah. I may, may even throw in there the American constitution itself. Well, indeed, indeed. And, and indeed, uh, one notes that the, I mean, the, 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 fact the, uh, the writers, the draftsmen of the uh, American constitution frequently cited the Magna Carta as one of their inspirations. So our rather disparate documents have given rise to inspiration around the world that have inspired constitutions. But on the other hand, we ourselves don't have a full uh, single document which sets out the constitutional rights. You have to discern them. And in Miller 1, the court was discerning one of those uh, constitutional documents to be the European Communities Act. And, and what's interesting here, it's a very, very insightful comment. I mean, what's interesting about Miller 1 is the, the court is saying a funda- one of the most fundamental functions of the Constitution is to ident- identify its sources of law. Uh, this is something which, of course, now um, has changed the dynamic, I think, in the judiciary, um, where there is more scope now for arguing in public law cases that the court should identify uh, not only the sources of law and the limits on, for example, the prerogative, but also um, what the content of the sources of law should be in, in establishing limits on the prerogative. Yes, indeed, you're looking at something of a functional test 
for what does a particular statute do, what's its role, what's its purpose, how central is it to the, the constitutional part uh, of, uh, of UK law, of, uh, of English law. So then continuing on with my brief description of, of the Miller, Miller 1 case, the consequence of, of the court's finding in paragraph 80 was that since European Union law was a new source of law, this meant that the conduit could not be removed by the executive's exercise of prerogative powers alone. It had to be, the court said, changed by Parliament's change, change of the law, of the 1972 law. And so it was Parliament, the court concluded, which needs to authorise by an act. It's not sufficient to implicate or imply uh, the existence of an authorisation, but Parliament needed to uh, authorise by an act of Parliament the executive before the executive can then give notice to terminate the UK's membership of the EU. And as we've heard, this is the first time that all 11 Supreme Court justices sat together to hear an appeal. It wasn't a unanimous result. It was an 8-3 split. Hugh, perhaps you could help us understand the implications of the dissenting judgments. Yes, I mean, I, I focus on Lord Reid. Uh, he, he took the words of Section 2.1 of the European Communities Act, and he took those words, he focused in particular on all, all rights in accordance with the treaties. And so, so what he said, well, if Parliament grants rights on the basis that they will expire in certain circumstances, then according to Lord Reid, no further legislation was needed if those circumstances occur. So focusing on the words in accordance with the treaties, if the treaties were no longer in force, then there were no rights to be in accordance with the treaties. And in particular, he found no basis uh, in the text of Section 2.1 for a distinction between EU law as it's modified from time to time, so that's new regulations, directives, decisions on one hand, and on the other hand, EU law as modified by withdrawal from the treaty. Uh, and so on that basis, he said that in accordance with the treaties simply depends on what treaties are in force at any one time. The majority treated uh, withdrawal from the EU treaties as a different form of change to the change affected by new EU directives or regulations. They found that such a fundamental change in the constitutional arrangements by the, uh, the removal of a source of law uh, was not something which could be done without the consent of Parliament. And that, I think, shows the importance attached by the majority to the classification of the European Communities Act as constitutional in character. A uh, short postscript. Uh, I think many lawyers were wondering uh, whether, in fact, the giving of the notice, which was uh, an issue in the Miller 1 case, would inevitably change English law. But the majority of the court accepted the government's statement that notice once given was irrevocable. That was a very debatable as a matter of law, and uh, that was very debat debatable as a matter of law, uh, but this point was not gone into by the Supreme Court, which simply proceeded on the basis of the government's statement. The result otherwise could have been different. In fact, Hugh, that was for me a key potential weakness uh, in our case, if the government had said that the decision is revocable at any point in time, then that would have taken out an essential basis of our argument, which is that the government, once it gives the notice, once it had fired the bullet, inevitably the UK would have left the European Union. 
and that was that that firing of the bullet was a key part of our of our argument and if they had taken a different approach i think it would have been more difficult for us to win Great stuff, guys. Let's move on to the what we're calling Miller 2. This is the appeal heard last year in relation to the Prime Minister's advice to the Queen to prorogue Parliament. Hugh, perhaps you could help us with the background to this one. Thank you, Stephen. Yes, so here we're fast-forwarding to August 2019. The context was that the UK was shortly to leave the EU, and Parliament's clear view was that a no-deal exit should be avoided. The government did not agree. On the 28th of August, the Prime Minister advised the Queen to prorogue Parliament. Uh, That is, the Queen was to exercise her prerogative power to prorogue Parliament on the advice of of the Prime Minister. The concern, however, was that the motive of the Prime Minister was to avoid Parliament interfering in the basis of the UK's withdrawal from the EU. So the prorogation of Parliament was challenged by the courts. At first instance, unsurprisingly, it was held non-justiciable. Uh, The Scottish Inner House held on appeal that the advice concerning prorogation was justiciable, that it was motivated by improper purpose, that is, to prevent scrutiny by Parliament of the terms of exit, and that it was therefore null and of no effect. In the Supreme Court, uh, there were four points before the court. The first one was justiciability. Was this a purely political question? Well, yes, thought the court, but the scope of the power can be determined by the courts. The the court cited the case of proclamations from 1611, the king hath no prerogative but that which the law of the land allows. What about accountability, said the government? The court's reaction to that was that this was necessary, but not only to parliament. The court cited Lord Diplock uh, in an earlier case in the House of Lords, that there there is accountability in two respects. First of all, accountability by ministers and the Prime Minister to Parliament for what they do as regards their efficiency and their policy, but to courts for the legality of what they do. And therefore, the court can review the legal limits of the power to prorogue and whether the advice was compliant with those legal limits. But it did not consider the legality of the decision to exercise the power. It's about the scope of the power itself, the legal limits on the scope of the power. I think, Dan, uh, you wanted to draw an analogy here uh, with uh, Miller 1. Yeah, Hugh, it's it's interesting because, of course, Miller 1 put front and centre the supremacy of Parliament in the Brexit process. And it was precisely this question of accountability of the government to Parliament that was part of the focus of the Miller 2 judgment, where the court had to decide, uh, was the government sufficiently accountable to Parliament if the government was going to prorogue Parliament. And what's interesting here is, as you you emphasise, the limits on the the scope of this power to prorogue. And there is a long history, of course, going back in terms of the courts establishing limits on the scope of the prerogative, going back to uh, the Banku number two case, uh, and even before that, the GCHQ case where the, the, uh, the courts imposed limits on the scope of the prerogative. But I think it's fair to say that neither of those cases, Banku number two or the GCHQ case, were as highly political as the context of the Miller two case. And so in that context, the Supreme Court's judgment is even more remarkable. 
The second question which the court had to consider was, all right, this is justiciable, the advice is justiciable, but what's the standard of review? There were two principles in play, uh, parliamentary sovereignty on one hand and parliamentary accountability on the other. Both could be damaged by prorogation because obviously Parliament's not sitting, it can't exercise its sovereignty, and also ministers can't be called to account. Following the Unison case in the Supreme Court, the question, uh, said the Supreme Court, was how far the principles of parliamentary sovereignty and parliamentary accountability were frustrated, and what was the reasonable justification uh, for any such frustration. Now, Dan, I mean, that's uh, somewhat unusual when one compares that with the, the normal standard of review, isn't it, in a the, in the normal judicial review case? Yeah, absolutely, Hugh. I mean, in the case of a normal, what I would call a normal JR, of course, both of the, the Miller cases were technically judicial reviews. But in the case of what I would classify as a standard or normal JR judicial review, the court is reviewing the exercise of discretion by the government. But in the case of, of the, the both Miller 1 and Miller 2, what the court was doing was establishing the limits on the scope of discretion that the government enjoyed. And in that context, deciding whether the government had exceeded the scope of the limits on its discretion in the particular case. Yeah, so that that's really the next question, the legality of the advice. And it's here that the Supreme Court is perhaps slightly uncharacteristically very blunt uh, because they had to consider, well, was Parliament's role frustrated at all? They found clearly yes, because it was being suspended from operations for five out of the eight available weeks. The, the court was impressed by John Major's evidence that approximately four to six days is necessary by way of prorogation in preparation for the Queen's speech. Uh, and the court therefore held that the five weeks on which the Prime Minister had decided cried out for an explanation, but no reason had been given. And so what the court essentially said was, well, you, the Prime Minister, you've given us no reasons. Uh, and the court said in terms that they could find no hint that the Prime Minister considered himself as more than the leader of the government and bearing constitutional responsibility. And, and so the, the court then moved on to the fourth question, which was the remedy. They were quite happy to declare the advice unlawful, that is the advice of the Queen, uh, but the question was, well, could they do more? Uh, and the, the government said, well, they couldn't do more because they would be thereby interfering with a proceeding in Parliament in breach of the Bill of Rights. The Supreme Court wasn't impressed by that uh, argument. Uh, it held that the prorogation was not a proceeding as proceeding was limited to the core business of Parliament. Indeed, prorogation itself puts a stop to that core business for a time and therefore could not be a proceeding. And so they held that the advice was unlawful, that the ordering council was therefore unlawful and null and void, that the prorogation was null and void. And so it was as if the commissioners, when they entered Parliament at the time of the prorogation of Parliament, entered with a blank paper uh, because they had nothing which was of any effect. And so in the court's view, there was no need to recall Parliament. It was as if the Parliament had been prorogued. So the next day, this is the, uh, the decision of the court, it was on the 24th of September, which is uh, in record time. The next day, Parliament continued as if the prorogation had never happened, and the prorogation ceremony was expunged from the record. And that illustrates, I think, just how efficacious remedies for judicial review can be in certain circumstances.
Let's move on just to consider what the takeaways are, or the lessons learned from Miller 2. Perhaps, Hugh, you could help us with that. Well, I think the, it's really from Miller 1 and 2. Uh, and I think that the first thing I'd say in the Supreme Court is reduce the number of arguments. It's a key route to success. If one contrasts, for example, here, uh, the, uh, the Miller 1 and 2 cases against, for example, a case I've just been involved in, Unwired Planet against uh, Huawei, uh, there a simple argument in the Miller cases that the European Communities Act is a constitutional statute. Can that be abrogated by the government withdrawing from the EU treaties without Parliament having its say? It's a fairly straightforward point. The, it was the government which introduced the complications by relying on the later statutes related to the EU, the 2011 European Communities Act and the 2015 Act, which then provided for the referendum. So if it's the respondent which is introducing the, uh, the complications, it means that the appellant's argument retains its purity and retains its simplicity. Hugh, you talk about the simplicity of the argument, but in fact, the, sim- the simplicity of the argument is arrived at only after a very great amount of work um, that involves reducing the complexities down to a simple proposition. And of course, that in many ways is, is the skill of an advocate. And David Panic employed that to great effect in the Supreme Court. The other thing, uh, in terms of a takeaway, I would also mention, Stephen, um, the framing of the question related to what Hugh has just said. I think it's really key when you're dealing with these complex cases to frame the question as specifically as possible to assist your case. And this is what uh, Gina Miller managed to do in both Brexit 1 and Brexit 2. I mean, I I particularly agree with that for the the second, Miller 2, because when you look at it on its face... Is the prorogation of Parliament uh, lawful or not? It sounds like something which is by definition non-justiciable. But then, as the Scottish Inner House did, when you start to focus on the advice regarding prorogation, you're then looking at the limits of the powers of uh, ministers uh, in advising the Queen on the prerogative power. So it's then looking at the limits of the power as opposed to the exercise of the power itself. And Hugh, it's exactly the same in relation to Miller 1, where at first glance, when you consider, well, does the government have the power to terminate treaties? Well, of course it does under the prerogative, but it's only when you integrate into that the second constitutional principle, which is that the government cannot alter UK law through use of the prerogative. And it's when you formulate the question in that sense, it's for that reason then you begin to see why the Supreme Court decided as it did. I think also another takeaway from the uh, Supreme Court cases is particularly from Miller too, is the speed of reaction. Because although there were some mutterings in late July 2019 that the government uh, might prorogue Parliament as a way of trying to avoid scrutiny of the exit route uh, from the EU, it was, there was nothing confirmed until in late August when it transpired that uh, Mr Rees-Mogg and others from the Privy Council had been to Balmoral and there had been a meeting of the Privy Council uh, and that the upshot of that meeting was that the Queen uh, had prorogued Parliament. Uh, And that's the 28th of August. And then on the 24th of September, we have the Supreme Court decision. And so in between, you've got the first instance decisions, you've got a Scottish inner house decision, and then you've got the Supreme Court hearing and then the Supreme Court judgment. And so really this is a shining example of how fast UK courts can act if the situation requires it. Because otherwise, of course, if there had been delay in this case, the case would have been very quickly moot. 
Yes, that's right, Hugh. And in fact, I think another takeaway from the cases is the influence of social media, remarkably. You had prior to Miller One, an influential blog by Tom Hickman, one of my co-counsel in Miller One, and two academics from the University of Oxford and King's College, which set out in precy or summary form some of the arguments that the Supreme Court actually went on to consider. And similarly, in both cases, the Supreme Court considered academic writings and arguments that had been made in relation to the issues before the court. And Stephen, this reminds me of the old adage that, um, that the English courts only consider academic writings when the author is dead as no longer really being in play. Yes, I mean, it's some time, of course, since that's been the case, that uh, gradually over the years, over the last 20, year, 20, 25 years or so, that in important cases, people like uh, Lord Newberger, Lord Hoffman, uh, Lord Bingham, have really credited the academics uh, with their contribution to the development of uh, case law in all sorts of areas of, uh, of the law. So in some ways, the uh, Supreme Court hearings illustrated a trend, as it were, in judicial decision-making at the highest level. Any other trends that are illustrated by these cases, Hugh? Yes, I think that interventions, the role of interventions, they are a potentially powerful tool in the Supreme Court if used in the right way. I think the challenge nowadays is to get more than written submissions, uh, it's, it's necessary to work closely with an intervener or a potential intervener, preferably from the beginning, and that is around the time that a party is considering uh, appealing to the Supreme Court uh, and seeking to get permission, because on getting permission to go to the Supreme Court, in fact, the voice of an intervener can be influential. When it gets to the hearing before the Supreme Court, often interveners get nothing more than written submissions. I think there the point is probably to allocate a particular issue to an intervener if you're keen that they have a separate voice, it's an important point uh, and it's a point which they have a particular angle on. And I think the Supreme Court is showing itself to be pretty receptive to interventions. And the reality of this is that they're keen on taking account of as many views as possible. They're conscious that uh, the clients before the court, that the parties before the court may not have the monopoly on the knowledge or the wisdom of the particular sector which is being considered. Uh, and the Supreme Court is keen to hear from those who have a real uh, voice or have a real view which might assist the court in getting to the best result. Yeah, Hugh, so in fact in, in Miller 1 it was of real importance that the Supreme Court considered that the, the governments of Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales should be able to make independent representations before the court, both in writing and orally, of course, on a number of the important issues at play in Miller 1, which included, of course, the status of various constitutional conventions. And the court, in fact, dedicated a not insignificant part of its judgment to the effect of those constitutional conventions, and so addressed the concerns and arguments of the governments of Northern Ireland, Wales and Scotland. Well, thank you both Hugh and Dan for that very insightful discussion about the two Gina Miller appeals to the Supreme Court. Insightful not just in terms of the analysis of the issues that were before the court and decided by the court on those occasions, but also for the wider implications of those decisions.
Join me next week for episode seven in the podcast series when I'll be hopefully joined by Richard Millett QC and Anna Dilnot to discuss a yet different type of litigation altogether. And that was a substantial piece of modern commercial chancery litigation called BAT and Sakana. My thanks go to Akash Sanecha for his assistance in research for this podcast and as always to Lucy Smith, the head of marketing at Essex Court Chambers. Thank you to all those who subscribe to this series and for the heartwarming feedback that we've received from some of those listeners and subscribers. I am Stephen Houseman, your host for this series, and I look forward to you joining me again for the next episode. Goodbye.